423, Solid Rock. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, the anchor holds within the veil. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath is covenant, his blood support me in the Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Amen, 796, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Let's sing that song, all three verses with joy. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day, day I will never forget. After I wandered in darkness away, Jesus, my Savior, I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend, he met the need of my heart. Shadows is crowning with joy, I am telling, he made all the darkness depart. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross a Savior made me whole, my sins were washed away and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Born of the Spirit with life from above, God's family divine, justified fully through Calvary's love, oh what a standing is mine, and the transaction swiftly was made, when as a sinner I came, took of the offer of grace, and if proper he saved me, oh praise his dear name, amen, heaven came down, glory filled my soul. The Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away, and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down, and glory filled my soul. Now I have a hope that will surely endure after the passing of time. 
have a future in heaven for sure. They're in those mansions of life. And it's because of that wonderful day when at the cross I believe. Riches eternal and blessings supernal from his precious hand I receive. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross the Savior made me whole, my sins were washed away and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Just read one verse this morning and then pray. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul is speaking here. He says, According to my earnest and expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. This is a time that we have set aside to worship you. And Lord, we understand that we're not capable of doing that on our own. We come before you and we beg, Lord, that you would do your work in our hearts and lives. Lord, that you would help us to draw closer to you, that we would surrender ourselves to you. Lord, we pray for the songs that are sung, that they would be sung to your honor and to your glory. We pray for the preaching, Lord, that I would be able to speak the words that you would have me to speak. But, Lord, just as importantly, that you would give each one here hearts to hear, that together we may strive to have you change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, now let's turn to page 164. 164, nothing but the blood. Amen. 164. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No. is the flow 
righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's go, oh, precious is the hope that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. And let's turn to page 400. And 17, 417, when we've got his blood upon us, it is well with our soul, amen. When peace like a
and the children can be dismissed, 11 and under. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, some verses that ought to be uh, familiar to you. Uh, if you've gone through the discipleship here at the church, you have uh, been asked to memorize these verses. And um, just so nobody gets wondering too much, I've got two other books here on the pulpit this morning. We'll get to those uh, in just a, a little bit, so don't worry about them. Let's look at Romans chapter 12. And uh, just before we read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I just want you to listen as I read Philippians chapter 1. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Now, Paul is speaking to the Philippians uh, the church at Philippi, he had started that church. He was now in prison. He had no idea what the future was holding for him. He, he said, listen, I want Christ to be magnified in my body, in my life, uh, in who and what I am, whether I live or whether I die. And I hope and pray that that would be something that would be close to all of our hearts here today, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, that, that you would just be willing to surrender your life for whatever God may have for you. Now turn to Romans chapter 12, if you're not already there, and let's read verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, if I were to ask a question here today, how many of you would like, would want, would desire God's perfect will for your life? How many would raise a hand and say, yeah, that's me. I, I would want God's perfect will in my life. I would think most of us that are here this morning would say, yes, I want what God has for me in my life. I want my life to count for Him uh, I would hope that in the services of Open Door Bible Baptist Church, if you felt otherwise, I'm going to live my life my way, that uh, you wouldn't want to say that out loud around here because we are, are here this morning because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen. And my prayer is that each one of us would find the truth that is in these verses, but oftentimes... This idea of knowing God's will and knowing what God wants us to do with our lives is rather elusive. Uh, I like to call it bumper pool Christianity. Uh, how many of you have ever seen the bumper pool table? I, I've never played bumper pool. I have no idea what you're supposed to do 
with all those dumb little obstacles in the middle of the table. Uh, I can't shoot the pool ball on a regular table. I don't try. I don't uh, do that stuff. I just can't. Uh, uh, but the simple truth of the matter is a lot of people live their life just like that ball on the bumper ball table, uh, bumper pool table. They just roll around, and when they hit an obstacle, oh, it must not be God's will. And they roll the other way until they hit another obstacle. Oh, it must not be God's will. And start rolling the other way. Water takes the path of least resistance. Aren't we supposed to be a little better than water? Amen. We're, we're not supposed to take the path of least resistance. That's not how God determines His will for our lives. The cross was not the path of least resistance. Can we get an amen on that? Uh, I mean, what Jesus did was on purpose. And if we put this verse, these verses, Romans 12, 11 and 12, he says, I beseech you, therefore, he's, he's connecting these two verses to what's happened in Romans 9, 10 and 11 is one of the greatest treatises in the entire Bible on the desire, on, on Paul's desire to see his people, the Jewish people, saved. It, these three chapters explain an awful lot. They explain the relationship of the non-Jew to the Jew. In the book of Ephesians, in the book of Colossians, uh, if you're doing your Bible reading schedule, which I encourage you to do, you would have just read those books uh, in the last several weeks. And Paul talks about the mystery of godliness. He talks about the mystery of God. Now, a lot of people, they love mysteries. You know what the problem with a good mystery is? Somebody made it up. You ever think about that? You sit here and read the book and say, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. How is Sherlock Holmes going to discover? Hey, it's, it's all made up. It's fake. There's no real mystery there. I've got a book someone gave me uh, several years ago for Christmas called Unsolved Mysteries of World War II. And that's exactly what it is. They never solved any of them. They're, they're just mysteries. The reason they're mysteries is because nobody made this stuff up. They've been able to figure out a few little parts and bits and pieces, but most of it, they just have absolutely no idea what happened. They tell the story of a bomber crew returning from Italy during the invasion and that they had radioed in uh, to the control tower to get a vector because of low fog and everything. They couldn't see the runway. They had no idea. They, uh, and uh, the plane just disappeared. Never found it. Sixty-some year, fifty-some years later, someone was out wandering in the middle of the desert and found that plane. They were on the wrong side of the marker. They didn't know it. They had already flown over the airport and the... Uh, uh, the, tele the person at the control terminal told them, uh, just keep coming straight, and they went straight till they ran out of gas. They said they opened the thermos that had held coffee for 40-some years, and it was still drinkable. 
Now, I wouldn't want to try that, but that's what the book said. They never found one bit, one shred of evidence where the crew went. Not one. Now, that's a mystery, my friends. Not something somebody made up. The mystery of godliness is the simple fact that the God of heaven would love you and I. The greatest mystery in all the world. You know what? Don't need to explain it. Just enjoy it. Amen? And Paul is explaining all of those things in Romans 9, 10, and 11. How that God loved the Jew, but He also loved the Gentile. And that He gives salvation to all. And, and any time uh, I'm allowed to present the gospel to anyone, if, if there is absolutely time to do so, I go to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, because it explains so simply and so clearly what you must do if you want to be saved. It says, that if thou, you, singular, all by yourself. It's one of the reasons I love my old King James Bible. It, I can understand what it's talking about. You, by yourself. That's what thou means, you, singular. Shout, confess. And here's, a lot of people like this idea. They think confession is saying what they want to be someday. Well, I want to be rich someday and pay all my bills. I want Jesus to be my Savior someday so I don't go to hell. Uh, I, I want to have a happy life. Uh, I, I want to have nice kids. Uh, I, I want to, to win the lottery. I mean, they put all this stuff in there. You don't want to win the lottery. Uh, just read the story of the people's lives who do. Um, it's not a good thing. It says that if thou shalt confess, that means to tell the truth, my friend. You know, if there's something missing in our society today, it is the inability to be honest. Everywhere you go, everything you do, I don't know much about ladies' clothes, but I have found out one thing. You go into a more expensive store, you buy a smaller size article of clothing. Now, that doesn't mean anything's changed. It's just they're being dishonest. If you're a size 6 at Marshall's, you're a size 4 at Macy's. It's just marketing is all that it is. It's dishonesty. Isn't it? Flattery will get you where? Hopefully nowhere. But normally it goes a whole lot farther than we would like to think it does, doesn't it? We like people to tell us good things about ourselves. We really do. But listen. Paul is going through here and he's explaining what it means to be saved. That if thou shalt confess, tell the truth. The truth is the Lord Jesus. Amen. The means the only one. Not one of many. Not equal among peers. That was the problem with the Roman Empire. They were more than willing to make Jesus an equal God among the peers of the Roman pantheon. 
That was not their problem. It was when these crazy Christians said, uh-uh, if you want to worship Jesus, you've got to go into the pantheon and throw away all the other gods and put Jesus only. Wait a minute, that's too much. And that's where the Christians got put on the hit list. And that's where they, they began to be viewed as troublemakers in the eyes of Rome. And when Nero was wanting to burn down the city and needed somebody to blame, well, here we got these crazy people called Christians who think the only God in the whole world is Jesus Christ. Hey, we can blame it on him, on them. And that's what he did. Nobody knows how many Christians gave their life because of that one little phrase, the Lord. That was communism's problem with Jesus. You see, communism is not a political system. It's a religion. The state is who you worship in the religious system of communism. You see, communism doesn't make a lick of sense if you treat it as a political system. Because why am I going to work out of the goodness of my heart to pay all of your bills just because I want to? You know, communism demands a higher level of human character than is humanly possible to ascertain. That's why it never works and never will work. Because you have to turn over everything to the enlightened few so that they can distribute it because we won't do that on our own. And once those enlightened few have everything, they're no longer enlightened. They're too busy taking care of everything for themselves, and you get anarchy, not communism. It only works if you treat it as a religion. Same thing with evolution. Same thing with all of these things. Now, you can call communism a bunch of different names. It, it's called socialism. Uh, in uh, uh, New York State, uh, has anyone here ever heard of the Working Families Party? Next time you go into the toll, uh, into the toll booth, yeah. Uh, next time you go into the voters booth, just look on the menu there. And, and that's what it is, is a menu. And... Uh, uh, look for the workers, the Working Families Party. Just another name for communists. You'll find Hillary always gets the endorsement of the Working Family Party. Excuse me, just a little politics this morning. But Working Families is communism. They have all kinds of different names for it. But the only way it works is if you treat it as a religion because it doesn't make sense any other way. The Bible says the Lord. One of the reasons we have so much freedom here in this country is because a group of men in the 1770s up until the 1790s when they framed the Constitution of the United States realized that they were not the sole keepers of liberty and they were not the brightest bulbs that had ever appeared on the horizon. They were not the epitome of all learning and all greatness. 
There was somebody bigger and greater than them or anything they could accomplish together collectively. They recognized the existence of God. And that's why we have all these freedoms in this country. And that's why other countries do not give those freedoms, even though they were founded by religions. You look at any country that has a state religion, and there is absolutely limited freedoms of the individual. You know, people are not going from the United States to live in Mexico because of the great economic opportunities and the great personal freedoms. It's the other way around, isn't it? Mexico's got a state religion. It was founded on the foundation of Catholicism, and there's very limited personal liberties. How many of you remember reading the letters from our dear departed missionary, Ray Wilson? Tell you what, in the city of Leon, they paid the price. They had their buildings attacked. They often would find that their security guards for the church building had been beaten and, and, and people had broken in and, and taken things. And when they went to the authorities, absolutely nothing was done. They had groups of people pledge, say, we're going to get rid of these Baptists and get them out of our town. Those things happened. The Bible says, the Lord, that means there's only one authority, the Lord Jesus Christ. The next word is Jesus, the Lord Jesus. I am so glad I don't have to depend upon the government of the United States of America for my salvation. How about you? Wouldn't that be an awful thing? Would you trust your soul to the United States Congress? If you wouldn't see me afterwards, I'll sell you the Brooklyn Bridge because you believe anything, you know it? I wouldn't trust my soul. I wouldn't trust anything to those people down there in Washington, D.C. I mean, just look what they do with it. I'm glad they're on recess. I love recess in Washington. That means they can't do anything, amen? I think we ought to vote in a permanent recess for some of those guys. But people look to all kinds of things for their salvation. It says the Lord Jesus. That's it. That's how simple it is. And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's the context for the verses that I want us to look at this morning. It's only taken us 20 minutes to get through the introduction. Well, I'll be through the message in another 90 or so. And uh, we'll, we'll get you out before supper time, I promise. But it is what our salvation is about that Paul bases these verses on. He says, I beg you, I beseech you, That is the strongest word in the English language for pleading, begging a person. Now, when we use the word begging, we have the idea of poverty-stricken and, and that kind of thing. And that's, 
This is the strongest word for asking someone another, asking some, something of someone that can be used in the English language. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I ask you today to think of where you would be if it were not for the mercies of Almighty God. Where would you be if God had no mercy? Stop and think about that a minute. Think of what direction your life was heading in before you got saved. Stop and think about the things that are going on in other people's lives who have turned their back on the Lord Jesus Christ and His truth and what is going on. I'll tell you, it's a wicked, wicked world in which we live. And the only thing that will save you from that wickedness is the mercies of God as He has presented His truth to us as a people living in this world that if we'll only confess the Lord Jesus and believe that He died and rose again from the dead for us, we can be saved. Well, I'll tell you, that is a merciful God. Amen? He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't pretend it never existed. Now, those are things we like to do, right? I walked downstairs this morning and I saw some little piece of something on the floor and uh, picked it up and it in the closet. Uh, that's what we like to do with things. God doesn't do that. He keeps perfect books. But when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus pays for them all. Those are the mercies of God. Now, God's only interested in one thing. He's interested in your body. It says that ye present your spirits a living sacrifice. Is that what it says in your Bible? Not if you have a real one. Amen. It says that ye present your futures. Uh, that, that ye present um, your feelings. How about that? That's a good catchword for today. We're touchy-feely, everybody. That ye present your plans. Oh, here's one. How about? He presents your desires. Oh, boy. Now we're getting close to the truth, aren't we? Uh-uh. He says that ye present your bodies. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone anywhere without your heart? Now, there, there may be somebody here. If you've had a heart transplant, you did. You left it on the table and you left. Uh, but for the most part, uh, unless there is some extraordinary behavior that has gone on or activity that has happened, you take your heart everywhere you go. I promise you one thing. No matter where you go in this world, no matter where you find yourself, guess who's going to be there? You are. That's amazing to some people. You say, now, Pastor, you're just being sarcastic and that. That's ridiculous. Who in the world would think that as long as you change your position, your place, and your environment, uh, excuse me, isn't New York City full of projects today? 
because some well-meaning people thought if they just changed the environment, they would change the people that lived in the environment. Does anybody here remember those things? I'm not being crazy this morning, but I think there are some other people that are, amen? They think that if you just change your environment, everything will change. No, you take yourself with you wherever you go. Now, here's what the Bible says. It says that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, how many of you have been here when we've gone through the Old Testament tabernacle? Would you just lift your hand so I got an idea? Okay, good majority of us today. We've been, we've studied that subject uh, many times here. We've taken uh, months at a time to go through that. And the, the whole picture that we want to bring from there is the idea of the sacrifice. The sacrifices that were offered. Number one, all of the sacrifices were either of um, flour uh, of various kinds or they were animals. God never has and never will ask for a human sacrifice. Somebody said, well, what about Genesis chapter 22? In Sunday school, we went over that where God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Yeah, but God knew what he was doing and Isaac never got hurt now, did he? God has always asked for the sacrifice of the innocent so the guilty could go free. Animals couldn't do anything. Now, do you, I, I don't want to repeat myself, but I want you to just get the picture. Here comes this family, and they have their little lamb that they're going to offer as a sacrifice. That lamb had been dedicated. He had to pass several tests. He had to be closely examined. There could be nothing imperfect with him. He could have no disease. He could have no problems. They had uh, maybe even kept that lamb in the very home which they lived just to check him out and make sure that he was uh, good enough to offer as a sacrifice. Do you think that lamb on the way kind of got looking around and said, hey, hey, wait a minute. We're going toward the temple. I don't know if I like this idea. Do you think the lamb did that? When the lamb saw the knife come out of the priest's robe, oh, no, they're going to get me this time. <laughs> and run away. Maybe he was a brave little lamb and said, okay, right here. Get it good the first time. I don't want to feel any pain. Now, we're being ridiculous, aren't we? I am anyway. You're laughing at me. The lamb had nothing to say about what was going to happen to him. Now, did he? Uh-oh. Now, wait a minute, preacher. Are you trying to insinuate that I'm supposed to be like that lamb and have nothing to say what's going to happen to me? You betcha. That's exactly what this verse is saying. When we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, that means we give everything up and let God do whatever He wants. As long as it agrees with my most inner desires, I'm absolutely pleased to do so. Now, you may read that in Rick Warren's book, but that's not in the Bible. God is not interested in what you want or who you are. Because what lives within your 
What beats within your chest? A heart that is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Why would God be interested in that? He's not. He doesn't want to use it. That's why, called, that's why the Bible calls it being born again. He wants to give us a brand new life. It says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy. H-O-L-Y. We could spend the whole morning on holy, couldn't we? If there's anything that is missing from Christianity today, if the, I'll tell you the first thing that gets sacrificed as the church moves toward the world is this idea of holiness. We've been fighting a battle for generations and, uh, and the battle is going to be fought as long as mankind is here. You can go into churches. I'm talking about fundamental Bible-believing Baptist churches that once preached and teach and have taught just like we do here this morning. You would not hear the word sin mentioned in that church today. You would not hear any condemnation of any kind of behavior whatsoever, no matter how bizarre or how profane and vile the depths of human depravity, because... The truth is no longer there and hasn't been there for generations. The first thing that goes is holiness. Holiness is the battle that you and I must face every day. A walk down the sidewalk in New York City to catch the subway train will be a battle over holiness. Trying to drive and find a parking spot around here is a battle for holiness. And because we're human, we lose that battle many times, do we not? Is that an excuse to go out and lose it again tomorrow? No. It says holy. Now, holy means holy. By the way, if it isn't holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, it's not holy, H-O-L-Y. Amen? Does everybody understand what I just said? Go like this. How many don't have any idea what I'm talking about? Just go like that, right? Holy. If it doesn't all belong to God, then it's not His. And if it's not his, it's not a living sacrifice. If it's not separated from this world and worldly pursuits, yes, you must work a job. Yes, you should pay your bills. Yes, you should be uh, 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 honest and, and full of integrity where you work. But this idea, it's as holy, acceptable unto God. Now, there's only one way your life can be acceptable unto God, and that's if God remakes it. Amen? God does not want you to build yourself up and live good enough that He's finally going to accept you. You know, sometimes in school we have this thing all wrong. We, we have people take tests. And uh, we have all these different levels of acceptability. 
Now, when we deal with levels of acceptability, what are we really dealing with? Can we be honest today in church? We're dealing with levels of failure that you're allowed to fail with. Now, if you only got it right a quarter of the time, for every ten times you performed, you only did it right two and a half times. Now, I don't know how you can do it a half a time, but you know what you'd be? A multi-million dollar paid baseball player. If you can do it right between 25% and 30% of the time, you're doing really good in the pros. Do you think God's going to accept a 70% failure rate? That's not acceptable to God. Now, if I go to college, guess what? If I get a 67, I passed. Well, unless I'm in California, and right now the judge is deciding whether I even need to pass to be accepted. The first judge said, no, you got to actually pass the test to get a high school diploma. I, I imagine in California there'll be another judge to come along and say, nah, nah, you don't need to pass any tests. All you got to do is be there, and that's good enough. That's what they did in New York State for almost a generation, wasn't it? That's why we have so many smart people running around today. It says acceptable unto God. Can I ask you what God's standard of acceptability is? It's perfection. Zero mistakes. That's why when we get saved... He wraps us in a new robe. It's called the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why when we stand before God, we're not going to say, by anything that I have done, it's all going to be by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I stand before you here today perfect through the payment that Jesus made for me. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And all He wants us to do is to present our body a living sacrifice. Now look at the next phrase here. And be not conformed, chapter two, verse 2, the first phrase of chapter 12, it says, and be not conformed to this world. Got a phone call this week by a contemporary Christian music artist. And he gets on the phone and says, My name is Carlos. How are you doing, preacher? And I'm going, Who in the world is this? Because most people don't talk to me that way. I hope you had a great cookout on Memorial Day. Now I knew he was from somewhere else because we didn't have a great cookout. We had a great time tearing up carpet in the basement. Amen. We did the cookout on Saturday. And... He said, I am so-and-so from... Oh, I said, oh, I think I remember getting an email from you. Uh, you're a contemporary Christian artist, are you not? And he said, yes. I said, well, our church takes a, a strong stand against contemporary music. Silence on the other end of the phone. And then he comes back. Are you still there? Oh, yeah, I'm here. I'm not hanging up on you. And... Uh, 
Well, would you mind telling me why you, you don't believe in contemporary Christianity? Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Now, I really despise when people do that because they're not being honest. He's not going to give up his entire life and his entire music form just because he talks to one preacher. He thought he was going to get in an argument with me and he was going to convince me somehow that his music is godly. I said, listen, I said, you'll have to hold on a minute while I take care of something. And so I got back on the phone. I just simply said, you know, there is nothing in this world that's going to help me worship or understand God any better than I do right now. Nothing. That's why this verse says, be not conformed to this world. And I said, the idea of going out into the world and dumbing down what the world does, which is what most contemporary Christian musicians do, they're not good enough to play in the bars, so they'll come and play in the churches. I said, that borders on blasphemy, my friend. Well, you have a nice day. Click. He hung up. The Bible says, be not conformed to this world. The world is not going to help you serve God. Take a look around you. Look what the world is doing with people's lives. Part of my job as, as a pastor, and, and if there's any part of my job that, that, is, uh, that I, I willingly do, but it just, it just hurts to do it, is to help people pick up the pieces of their lives after they tried everything the world has to offer. Because once the world's done with you, there's not much left. They take away your purity. They take away your ability to think cleanly and properly and purely. They rob you of your innocence. They're doing that in kindergarten now. Trying to train little children. And destroy their minds. And by the time they get into high school, right there in the classroom, they have races to put condoms on cucumbers and other things. Now you tell me something. What does that do to the heart and soul of a young teenage person? When they bring in pornographic films, when they go into the locker room, when they go home with their friends and Big Brother happens to be there, where people buy alcohol and cigarettes for 12 and 13 year old children. Don't look at me like that doesn't happen. How many of you were doing that stuff when you were 12 and 13? How many of you had access to it or knew your friends did? I mean, that's what the world wants to do. And when you can't behave according to their thing, they're going to put you on drugs. What do you think Ritalin does to the mind and psyche of a little child? And Prozac. And then when they get older, boy, it's heavy-duty stuff. You ought to walk down the halls of a psych ward sometime and look into the vacant minds. They're being treated 
They're getting help for their problems. Boy, when they're done, there's, no, there's nothing you can do to help some of them. Their mind and their emotional base and everything within them, they're just an empty shell that has two feet that can put on shoes and walk. That's what the world does when it's done with you. It says, be not conformed to this world. But be ye, what? Transformed. It's not talking about that silly little cartoon called Transformers, all right? It says, be ye transformed. That word means to change. Maybe I should have brought a transformer here and plugged it in. And it takes AC current and turns it into DC current. And if you take two rods, it'll shoot a lightning bolt between them and... and uh, I mean, it, it makes 120 volts AC into 1,000 volts DC, so it can jump that arc. It always makes it bigger and better than it was before. That's what transformers are all about. Now, God says, I want you to be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How many of you remember how differently, just stop and think of how differently you think about things today than you did when you first got saved? That, it starts all right here. Why do you think they want to give little kids Ritalin? Why do you think they want to put you on all these different medications? If you feel sad. Have you ever read a clinical, uh, a, 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 uh, the clinical definition of depression. Has anybody here ever tried to read one of that? It's a notebook. In fact, if I brought out the clinical definition of depression, I could diagnose every person in this auditorium as clinically depressed. It's not hard. Have you felt sad? Five out of the last seven days? You're clinically depressed. I mean, how many of you were frustrated when they flooded out the subway system this week, huh? That resentment that you built up inside of you is a, is, a, is a symptom of depression. Did you know that? I mean, it's not ever, it's a catch-all. It always has because mankind without God's word cannot explain human behavior. And they don't want God's definition of it because... They don't like it. It says bad things about you, and that might harm your self-esteem. Well, I hope we can do a little damage to it today, amen? And get your eyes off you and put them on the Lord Jesus Christ. That'll help. It'll actually transform you. It'll renew your mind. It'll allow you to stop thinking about you and all your problems and start thinking about God and what he's done to solve them, amen? It says that you may be able to prove what is that good and that perfect and that, uh, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, we're almost done. I brought two books into the pulpit this morning. Not because of what's in the books, but I want to illustrate them. The first book here we're going to talk about because this man visited our services in the year 2000. How many remember Dr. Art Wilson when he was here? Incredible preacher. 
preach for an hour and a half and you thought you were sitting there for 10 minutes. This is his story. He was born in 1912, preached his first sermon in 1939. As before most of us in here were born, he preached his last sermon in 2004, laying in a bed, blind, paralyzed, could barely speak into a telephone that was hooked up to a PA system at a church. And I think he only, only spoke for about 55, 60 minutes. He was not feeling really good that day. His next Sunday service was in heaven. Had over 100 men called to preach during his life here in the United States. Responsible for who knows how many churches were started by those men going out. Had one of the greatest missions-giving churches in the Midwest when he was the pastor of. He only pastored for 31 years. And he traveled this country just preaching. Traveled the world, actually. Incredible man. To be around Dr. Wilson was to be encouraged. To hear that man preach. And I, I didn't tell anybody in our church because they didn't. He was blind when he was here in 2000. And nobody in our church knew he was blind except me until after he left. Because... He'd come up here and he memorized our platform. In fact, he had me fix up a board that he could draw on. And, and uh, if you magnified something about 250 times, he could read it. But I mean, legally and honestly, when he looked at everything, normally it was just a blur. He could look at one verse at a time under one of those special magnifying machines. And he would memorize the Scripture and think about it and make all those connections in his mind and and I mean he he studied God's word until the day he died he's an incredible man gave his life I mean I believe I can tell you that from what I know of Dr. Wilson I knew him he was uh, uh, not a personal personal friend as Dr. Wilson knew many many people his wife attended the same church that I did when I was in Springfield, Missouri, and she is one of my friends. In fact, when I was there in Oklahoma City for graduation week, Mrs. Wilson was there. And probably the highlight of my week was to be able to take her out for lunch. And, uh, but this was a man that lived these verses. He could have done anything he wanted, but he gave his life to Jesus Christ. A living sacrifice. Not that he was perfect, but his life counted for Christ. Now I pick up another book. This book belonged to a man named John Stamm. Does anybody here know who John Stamm was other than my children? He was a missionary in China. This is an 1862 edition of uh, John, not John, uh, yeah, John Bunyan's writings. Still has a bookmark in it. Has pencil marks up to where the bookmark it was. Then there's no more pencil marks. Let me tell you the story of John Stan. 
John Stamm was raised in a home where his father was a preacher. But John did not get saved until he was a little older. In fact, I, I did the math. John and Betty Stamm were uh, uh, five and six years. John was six years older than Dr. Wilson. Betty was five years older than Dr. Wilson. The reason most of you never heard of them because they went to China as missionaries. Betty had been raised on the mission field, came back to the United States to do her college work, went back to China as a single missionary. They met and married in China. He had been in China about 16 months and had learned as much as he possibly could in that time of the language. In fact, he was already teaching in Chinese and they were working together and they were being sent out by the China Inland Mission and they began to look and there was in the 30s, the 1930s, there were a lot of problems with the communists. And they had agreed on the city of Tingse. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that exactly correct, but it's, it's close. They felt that it was a safe place to go and that they would be able to start a mission there, that they would be close enough to other Christian works to have some support from them and, and work. They were in Tingse two weeks when a band of over 6,000 communist guerrillas took the city. They took John and Betty Stam into custody, being foreigners, marched them 12 miles through the mountains, with a six-month-old baby in their arms. They took little baby Helen and zipped her into a sleeping bag in the house where they were being held captive. The communist soldiers came in and dragged them out to a little grassy knoll on top where everybody in the city could see them and beheaded them right there. First John then Betty, and left them laying right there in the snow and the ice as a testimony that you better not mess with the communists. Now, what had John and Betty done to the communists? Absolutely nothing. They were just trying to teach the gospel. Praise God, little baby Helen was rescued. She was carried halfway across that country by Chinese people turned over to another Baptist missionary. John and Betty Stan were Baptists, by the way. Some of you may have heard the name of John Birch. He served as a missionary until the war broke out. Then he served as a pathfinder for the American military troops. The communists got him on a train. He was the first person to die in the Cold War against communism after World War II was over. By the way, the John Birch Society has really nothing to do with John Birch. They just grabbed his name. He was a Bible-believing Christian. But it was John who was able to get little Helen out of the country, back here to the United States. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Helen's daughter, some of you may know, Shannon Lucid, who holds the world's record for the longest time of a woman in space, the astronaut. That's Helen's daughter. John and Betty Stam's granddaughter. When John and Betty Stam were executed, you know how many churches they left behind? None. 
Do you know how great a ministry they had in China? Very little. They had only been in that town two weeks. They didn't even have time to get their uh, belongings. And this book, as the communist Chinese looted and tore everything about, this book was thrown on the floor in that house and someone inside. It says, John C. Stam rescued from the loot, Ting Set, China, 1934. I, I just bring two books to you today. We look at the life of one Dr. Wilson, lived to be 92 years old, preached longer than many people lived. I was at Dr. Wilson's funeral, and a preacher, some of you may remember, was sitting beside me, and, and uh, they, uh, J.C. Uh, Worsham, and uh, Richard, I'm sorry, Richard Worsham was sitting beside me, and they had called up all the preachers that were called under the ministry of Dr. Wilson. And only about 15 guys went to the platform and old Richard banged me in the chest and said, Old Art outlived them all. He lived longer than many of his preacher boys who were called to a ministry under him. They were dead and buried and he was still preaching. Then I think about the contrast of John and Betty Stan, who, humanly speaking, counted very little. Got very little of the work done which God said, which they believed God wanted them to do. But I believe both were total examples of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. One presented his body until there was no more body left. 92 years old, laying on a bed, still preaching over telephone. I love Brother Wilson. The other two, John was 28, Betty was 27. No time to accomplish anything, humanly speaking. I have no idea what the numbers were of people who were called to the mission field by hearing the testimony of their martyrdom, but most of them never had a chance to go because the doors to China were slammed shut forever after the Second World War. The only churches that are going in China today were ones that were started by people who were the contemporaries of John and Betty Stam in the 30s and churches who were started by them. And by the way, they're still going today because Jesus' church doesn't fold up when people lose their lives for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, the question I have today is, if God called you to be an Art Wilson and you knew it, we'd have a line from here to the Brooklyn Bridge and back. If God called you to be a John or Betty Stan, I don't know if we, and you knew it, I don't know if we'd have enough people to fill one of these little kneeling benches up front. Now, we're not asking for volunteers to die. We're asking for people who today will be willing to be that living sacrifice and let God do what he wants.
You know, God knows what he's doing. He doesn't need us to help him out. He doesn't need you and I to explain how things are to him. There were many people who said, what a waste of John and Betty Stam, those two lovely young people. God said, that was their reasonable service. They did what I wanted them to do, and I've accomplished what I've wanted to through their lives. You know, we don't have to understand what God is doing. But we do have an obligation to be obedient to his word. It's called surrender. If you're not saved, you've never surrendered. You must give your life wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've had people, but pastor, I tried that. Well, if you tried it, you never did it. Because you can't try it. It lasts for all eternity. You say, Pastor, I'm saved, but I don't think I'm ready to do what John and Betty Stan did. Well, you'd have to find yourself in an absolutely extraordinary set of circumstances to put yourself where John and Betty Stan were. I don't think you could manufacture that. And, and honestly, I don't think you have to worry about it. Uh, living here in the United States, that somebody's going to show up at your door and try to kill you because you're a Christian. Now, they may try to kill you for the brand-new Cadillac parked in the driveway. Uh, they may try to kill you for your credit cards or something like that, but that's not suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And, and I think it's time that, that we just got a hold of these verses, if we could. And, and summertime's coming. We want to take a vacation. We want to take a break. But don't take a break from God. Amen? Don't. It says... A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. How many of us today would say, that's me, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we just want to be obedient to your word. just want to ask the question this morning before we finish this prayer. How many would pray with me and say, Pastor, that's me. I want, I want to live these words in my heart and in my life. As no one's looking around, would you just join me, lift up that hand as a testimony to God saying, hey, this is me. I, I want my life to count for God. I'm serious about this thing. Just lift it up. Hold it up for a minute. Let's hold those hands. You're not holding them up for me. You're holding them up for the Lord. Let's just take a moment here and say, Lord, you see these hands. This is what I want to do. You may put them down. How many would say today, Preacher, I can't join that prayer because I've never been saved and I'm concerned about my soul. Would you pray for me? I'd be happy to pray for you. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you in any way. But you cannot join us in that prayer until you have accepted Jesus as your own personal Savior. Would there be even one here today that would just slip up a hand while no one's looking around and say, Preacher, you pray for me. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm concerned about my soul. Raising a hand doesn't get you to be saved. You have to personally make that decision between you and God. 
But would you at least allow a preacher to pray for you anonymously? Would there be anyone here today that would just slip up a hand while no one's looking around and say, pray for me? Dear Heavenly Father, you saw the many hands that were raised saying, I want my life to be that living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. I understand that this is reasonable. That I don't want to be conformed to this world. Lord, we ask that you would do your work in our hearts and lives today. Lord, that it would not be just a, this is what I want to do on Sunday and going back to the same old thing on Monday. Lord, we pray that we would literally present our bodies as that living sacrifice. Lord, that with the words of the Apostle Paul, that you would be magnified in my life, whether it be by life or by death. Lord, we ask that you would find here among these pews those who you would count faithful and those who you could use to bring glory to your name. The greatest act of worship we as human beings can perform is to allow you to use us to bring glory to your name. That can only happen once we give everything up. Once we become that living sacrifice. Lord, we ask for your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.